Well, it seems that the problems in Corinth and with the Corinthian church just continue to stack up. And we're going to see that as we proceed into chapter 6 and beyond. Last week we looked at chapter 5 where Paul addresses the Corinthians' lax attitude towards serious and outward and unrepentant sin and the need where, where it crops up to exercise church discipline when the purity, integrity and witness of the church of Jesus and to Jesus is threatened. And now today, chapter 6 arises out of a similar concern for the detrimental and negative impact on the name and the glory of Jesus Christ that comes about through inappropriate behaviour within the church. So let's read uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 11 together, and then we shall uh, pray and dive in. So let me read. This is what God's word says to us through Paul. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial, trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So then, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be? that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, defraud. and even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But... You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you that it speaks truth and is so applicable to us in the modern world, even though it comes some 2,000 years ago. We pray now this morning as we explore this passage together that you will speak it right into our hearts where it needs to be heard and that we will do our spirit-empowered, faith-fueled best to apply it to our lives so that we might relate to one another in a way that brings you glory and the name of Jesus will not be uh, tainted in any way but would be held out and seen as glorious. And We ask that in his name now. Amen. Amen. Well, probably the first thing you noticed is the list of sins that come up in verses 9 and 10. They jump out at us. Words like sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, drunkenness, swindlers. 
And they can be the things that get our attention this morning. But while Paul does address a wide variety of issues, actually the main thrust of the passage this morning is how Christians and how churches, gospel-shaped communities, are supposed to handle ordinary, everyday matters of life that crop up amongst uh, the church family as we live life together. It's all about when one member has a dispute against another member. So instead of thinking primarily about uh, those kind of what we might call more serious sins, what Paul is actually getting at this morning might be something like this. How a Christian employee is supposed to relate to their Christian boss when there's a dispute, or vice versa. Or how a Christian tenant might relate to his Christian landlord, or vice versa. Or how two Christian siblings divide up their deceased parents' estate, and there's a dispute. Or if you're in business with Christians, how your business partnership, when it, when it turns sour, how should you put it right? Or maybe someone who is a rich Christian or a more advantaged Christian takes advantage over a poorer or less fortunate Christian. How should we respond? Really, it's about how Christians are supposed to react when we mistreat one another, when we wrong one another, when we cheat or defraud one another. It could be about how we respond when we when someone manipulates us, when someone uses the status or the power or the influence they have to lever us into doing something that we don't want to do, how should we respond? Really, this passage is about how Christians experience relationship breakdown or sin against one another in ways that don't necessarily require church discipline. How should we respond? And fortunately, the Corinthians provide us with another shocking example of what not to do so that we might learn what to do. They were rushing off to the law courts with nasty lawsuits against one another. Now, <coughs> perhaps you read 1 Corinthians 6 or you've read it before and you think, well, that's really initially very hard to relate to because I've never taken anybody to court. In fact, my only experience of court has only been what I've seen on the TV in crime dramas, and, and I, probably few of us have ever set foot in a court for legal proceedings. So it can be hard to relate, but what we're going to see is that Paul's instructions and his response to the situation in 1 Corinthians, uh, in Corinthians is wide-reaching in its effects on how we're to understand ourselves, how we're to understand our community life together, and how we're to function in interpersonal relationships, regardless of whether there's any kind of legal situation involved. Okay, so verses 1 to 11, Paul instructs the church to handle situations, as we've already kind of outlined, in-house. Now, before we proceed any further, I just want to say something really, really important. In calling Christians to deal with situations in-house, he is by no means implying that all grievances, that all disputes, and that all sin that occur within the life of a local church are to be dealt with as internal issues. Unfortunately, very sadly, throughout the years, churches around the world have made serious mistakes in trying to handle issues internally that required the intervention of authorities and that should have been reported to law enforcement. And so there is unfortunately a whole list of uh, errors and places and, and points in history that you can point to where churches have made those mistakes in areas like financial impropriety or embezzlement of ministry funds. 
where they've turned a blind eye to child or domestic abuse or where sexual misconduct among members and leaders has not been reported. Where these kind of things arise in the life of the church and really any other kind of criminal activity or matter that arises with legal ramifications, the church should report what is going on to the appropriate authorities and not keep it in-house. I can't stress that enough. So we're not talking about those things. And Paul would agree with us. If you were to turn to Romans chapter 13, you would see that he sees the state as God's tool, as God's servant, to uphold the rule of law and to execute justice on offenders and criminals. But our scope of verses 1 to 11 is limited to the kind of the standard interpersonal, intra-church disputes that don't need church discipline, that don't need to be elevated to the outside. And to help us understand this passage, I've got three headings, three thoughts this morning that we're going to consider. So the first of all, we're going to consider the Christian's calling Then we're going to consider the Corinthian crisis. And then finally and most gloriously, we're going to consider Christ together. So three C's there. So Matthew loves that. He loves my alliteration. I know that. So consider the Christian calling, consider the Corinthian crisis, and then consider Christ. So let's begin with considering the Christian's calling. If you notice in verse 1, Paul explodes with indignation, righteous indignation at what is going on in the church. And we, shall, we should feel his outrage. He basically says to them, how dare you take one another to court? He's outraged at the Corinthians going to the unrighteous or unbelieving secular law courts to resolve disputes among Christian brothers and sisters. Now, his concern is not the fact that lawsuits necessarily are happening, but the lack of gospel understanding and Christ-likeness that is behind such behavior. And so in verses 1 to 4, they revolve around the series of questions that Paul poses to get his readers to freshly consider who they are as God's people. So yes, this church is full of sin. We've seen that and we'll continue to see that right through to almost the end of the book. And yet, Paul doesn't mean that they're any less the people of God. He wants the Corinthians and he wants us this morning to consider their calling and their identity as Christians. Because if you see that reality, if you view life through that lens and that perspective, it will help them and us to see the absurdity of what is happening between Christian brothers and sisters. So in verses 1 and 2, he calls them saints twice. So he says, uh, how dare you go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So he calls them saints. This isn't something new. He has referred to them already in saints as saints in chapter 1, verse 2. Now, don't misunderstand. Saints is not like the Catholic Church who... Uh, pronounce people to hold an official honor and they revere them and they elevate their status because of their holiness and their superior virtuosity. That's not what saint means here. Saint means someone whom God has decisively acted upon to bring them to life, to make them holy, to set them apart as his people. And so that includes the Corinthians and that includes you and me this morning if we are Christians. Paul wants us to consider our identity because in considering our identity as saints, it should affect the way that we conduct ourselves towards one another. That there should be a difference in how saints conduct themselves in comparison to the flawed, fallen, sinful people of this world. 
Now, we're not morally perfect. We still sin, but there should be a difference. It's our responsibility as saints to display an attractive and an alternative way of living life. And so when it comes to grievances and when it comes to disputes between brothers and sisters, we should not be shaped by the brokenness of our world. But as a gospel-shaped community with a gospel-given identity as saints, we're to operate with gospel-shaped principles, with gospel-shaped processes, with gospel-shaped and gospel-affected hearts and motives in resolving issues. We're to be different. And the Corinthians were not being different. Then in verse 2, he invites us to consider our calling in the future, what is before us. And we get this mysterious glimpse about what is going to happen on the last day, where we're going to judge the world and angels. Now, don't get too caught up on the extravagant language that Paul uses here, because nobody really knows what that means. All right? And we'll get to heaven and we'll find out. Except we can say this, I think. As those who are united with Jesus Christ... The Corinthians and our destinies are bound up together with his. Okay? And when God returns in the person of Jesus to put the world to rights, and he brings his righteous justice on the earth, he is somehow going to include those that he has made right, those that he has made righteous, so you and me, in that process. Now, I don't know how, or I don't know the details, But Paul's point is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you're going to judge angels, if you're going to judge the world one day, if you're going to be involved in in God making things right in the end in some way, however that all falls out, surely you have the God-given ability to deal with disputes in this world right now. That's his point. Why run off to the law courts? Why go to the unrighteous when you can deal with it now? Because you know what? This is what you're going to be doing in the future. So he wants us to consider our calling. And in doing so, he doesn't call us to anything radical. He simply says, listen, church, step up and handle the disputes and the grievances and your own business in line with the gospel. For those who have been made right, ought we not be able to make our relationships right when they're out of skew? The Corinthians were suffering from a gospel amnesia. They had forgotten their calling and their identity, which led them to behave like non-saints, like the unrighteous. And Paul reminds them of their calling. So how does this apply to us? Well, first of all, this church is full of sinners. That's right. You're all out there and here as well. We're all sinners. And unfortunately and inevitably from time to time, we will sin against one another. We will hurt one another, sometimes inadvertently, sometimes we'll do it on purpose. Okay, but in those times, when those things happen, we should make every effort to address the problem together as a church family, and we should do it without gospel amnesia. We've got to do it remembering our calling and our identity as saints, and let the gospel shape our relationships and how we handle our disputes. So that's consider the Christian's calling. Secondly, we're to consider the Corinthian crisis. Consider the Corinthian crisis. If you remember in chapter 4, Paul said that he didn't want to shame the Corinthians over their behaviour that was ripping the church apart in divisiveness and division. But here in verses 5 and 6, he says he's writing what he's writing specifically with the purpose of shaming them. 
Okay, so there's something so scandalous about their behavior that he wants them to feel ashamed. And if you consider the irony, I think we get a little window into it. The irony of chapters 5 and 6 that flow together. In chapter 5, the Corinthian church was unwilling to deal with serious sexual immorality between a man and his stepmother. And they were avoiding judging that person inside the church, but they were keeping their distance from the sexually immoral in the world. But now here in chapter 6, the irony is they're very willing to deal with minor issues and take them into the world for the world's judgment. There's an irony there that we shouldn't miss. And so in verse 5, Paul basically says, how can you, who you, you guys, you think you're so wise, why is there no one wise enough to, dis, to judge the disputes in the church? And you guys who think you are such a superior, super spiritual church, how come you have to rely on unrighteous law courts and pagans for help? There's the crisis. They were turning to the world instead of trusting in God. Now, we're not told the reasons for the lawsuits or uh, the disputes, but no doubt everybody in the church knew what was going on. And in verses 7 and 8, we're given a little hint because he, Paul rebukes them for how they are wronging and defrauding or cheating one another. But so, so it's a minor thing, really, in comparison to the sexual immorality of chapter 5. You think he would want them to feel shame for that. But he wants them to feel shame for what seemingly is, is minor. So perhaps the shame lies not in the specific grievance, but is located somewhere else. And I think you'll, we'll find that as we go on here now. Historians, both secular and uh, ancient, so modern and ancient historians, seem to agree that Roman criminal law was, by and large, fair and objective. But the civil law, Roman civil law, was anything but. Okay? In civil cases, Romans would take one another to court, not to seek justice, but really to establish their superiority and their influence and their social status in society. So you would often find rich and influential and powerful people would take the less fortunate and the less powerful and the less influential people to court to exploit them to trample on them so that they could get a leg up in the world. And they would use all sorts of underhanded uh, means to establish their superiority and, their, and gain more influence. So they would bribe the judges, they would, be, they would pull strings, there would be lots of mutual backstratching. And so I think the shock that Paul feels and the shame that the Corinthians should feel is not that there were disputes between Christians because that's part of the course. Neither is it that there's some, sometimes those things escalate to the law courts because sometimes that is required. But I think the shocking thing here is that Paul sees Christians trying to get a leg up in the world by trampling on other Christians. That Christians would wrong and defraud other Christians to gain advantage in the world's eyes. That Christians would assert their rights and their entitlements and seek vindication or vengeance through the law courts rather than through peaceful reconciliation and gracious mediation in the church. Really, we'd sum it up like this. Paul is so concerned that the Christians in Corinth would be more concerned with how they look in the world than how they look to Jesus. And such behavior is shameful, Paul says. It goes against the grain of the gospel. And in verse 7, he actually calls it defeat. 
To behave like this is defeat. It's utter failure. When brothers and sisters who trust the same saviour, when we belong to the same father, when we're filled with the same spirit, when we're destined for the same eternal kingdom of God, when we are unable to resolve disputes, that is a shameful thing. Because it reveals a lack of trust in God. See, the Corinthians, by going to the city law courts, by going to secular judges, were basically saying, we don't believe God's word or his wisdom or his power or his gospel has the resources to sort out our problems. So we need you to do it for us. Can you see the scandal of that? And he gives them a warning in verses 8 through 10 to explain the gravity of the situation. In verse 8, he says, you yourselves wrong and defraud. And then in verse 10, he says this, do not be deceived. Oh, sorry, verse, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous, actually that word there is wrongdoer, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So here's the warning. You're doing wrong. Don't you know wrongdoers don't inherit the kingdom of God? Oh, but Paul, I thought it was sexually immoral and adulterers and drunken and homosexuals. They don't inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, no. Do you know what? If you don't repent of your wrongdoing, you fall into the same category. Because, the categorical, because your behavior is a categorical denial of all that you profess. You're basically saying, God doesn't know what he's doing. God can't be trusted. God isn't powerful. You put yourself among the unrighteous. And when you do that, if you continue in blatant and unrepentant sin, you will be judged. And do not be deceived. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's a strong and sober warning, but it's not a warning to those who have ever sinned in these ways. If you've ever had a falling out with your brother or your sister, your Christian brother or sister, uh, Paul is not warning you that you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, But he is addressing those who habitually and continually and persistently sin without repentance and without any desire to stop. And he is writing this warning to intend to shock the Corinthians into seeing that there's not two levels of sin. Okay? Sin is transgressing God's law. And if you break one part, you break all of it. And if you break it in any shape or form, you need a savior. You need to turn in repentance to Christ. You need the gospel to transform you. For if not, it will result in destruction and defeat so we can't just say well if as long as I steer clear of these things these serious things I can just get away with the respectable sins no Paul says we have to as Christians deal with every ordinary matter of daily life in light of the gospel the Corinthians weren't doing it and that was their crisis so how do you overcome such a crisis how do you cure gospel amnesia how do you find the resources to be able to deal with grievances in the context of the local church? Well, finally and thirdly, you consider Christ. You consider Jesus. 
Christ. In verse 7, Paul offers an alternative to the defeat that the Corinthians are experiencing. He says this, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Now, it's not a suggestion to sweep things under the carpet, but it's a suggestion to redirect our thoughts away from our rights and from winning the argument to the one who has the ultimate victory, to the one who has carried away our guilt and our shame at the cross, to the one who laid down his majesty, who laid down his rights, who laid down his very life to save us. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Because that's what Jesus said. Places like Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 39. When a brother strikes you on the cheek, what do you do? You stand up tall and you thump him back harder. No. When a brother strikes you on the cheek, you turn the other cheek and let him strike that one as well. Why not be wronged and defrauded? That's what Jesus commanded. More importantly, that's what Jesus did in places like Philippians 2. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a servant. And in humility, he laid down his life. And in obedience, he was obedient to death on a cross. He sacrificed his life and gave it up for the sake of others, for reconciliation, for forgiveness. And what looked like defeat in the eyes of the world was actually victory. And that's what Paul is saying to us here. Why not be wrong? Why not be defrauded? Because Jesus has endured what you have done. And he has endured, what, he has uh, given up what was rightfully his so that you might be saved. Let us follow him. If he has done so much, if he has absorbed all of our wrongs, if he has been defrauded of all of his rights, why can we not now as his people not do the same as him? Jesus calls us to a different path. It's a narrow path. It's a hard way. But the glory of the gospel is that the church is comprised of redeemed sinners we're people who were once hostile to Christ, but now have been made new, been made alive. We've experienced a mighty transformation, almost too wonderful to imagine. So in verse 11, Paul will say, you used to be sinners like these people, but now you have been washed. The stain of your sin has been eradicated through the blood of Jesus Christ. You have been sanctified. You've been made holy. You've been set apart as God's people. You've been justified. You've been declared righteous. You've been acquitted of all of your sins and your charges. You've been freed from your guilt and you've been made right with God. And all of this is only possible through Jesus Christ and through his spirit who has made us alive by regenerating our hearts and giving us the gift of faith that we might believe. And Paul would say to us this morning, let those three words, let those three words that summarize the gospel sink into our hearts. Because only in considering Christ do we find the hope and the help of dealing with our grievances with grace. For those that Jesus has put into right relationship with himself, we now have all of the power and the resources that we need in the gospel to make our relationships right. So this has massive implications for us in how we deal with one another. If we've been wronged, 
we can absorb that wrong just as Christ absorbed our wrongs. We can be forgiving just as Christ has forgiven us. We can pursue reconciliation with one another just as Christ has reconciled us to the Father. And we can confess our sins quickly and freely because we know there is grace through Christ. So if there's someone, let me, well, let me ask you an application question in closing. Is there someone with whom you have a grievance this morning that you need to make right? Go and do it. Is there a certain person in your heart who's sinned against you that you really don't want to forgive? Consider Christ and extend forgiveness as you have been forgiven. Is there a place in your mind and in your heart where gospel amnesia has taken over and it's affecting your relationships between Christian brothers and sisters? Paul would say, let me remind you of your calling and let me remind you of your Christ, your Saviour. Take your sin seriously, but deal with it graciously, just as Christ has dealt with ours. And let grace affect our grievances. Let's pray.